Welcome to Casting Light, the entertainment lighting podcast. I'm your host, Jason Marin, and with me is my fabulous co-host, Teresa Unfree. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. We tweet at Podcasting Light, and you can also find us on Facebook. Teresa, where can people find more information about you and your company? Hey, Jason. You can find information on Taj Event Productions at tajeventproductions.com, or like us on Facebook at Taj Event Productions, or follow us on Twitter at Taj Events. Casting Light focuses on lighting designers, particularly those who cross over between multiple parts of the business. We focus on the allied professionals who are critical to the execution of a design, programmers, lighting directors, and production electricians, and we focus on alternate professional careers in lighting, software programming, fixture design, manufacturer representation. Our guest today has almost 25 years' experience in the business as lighting designer, lighting director, programmer, production manager, and producer. He runs his own production company, Guy Smith Productions, and you can find them on the web at guysmithproductions.com. We're thrilled to welcome Guy Smith into the studio. Thanks for joining us, Guy. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's kind of fabulous to see you. Great to um, see you, too. What's, uh, so what's the big project right now? Right now, I just got done with two big projects. Um, so I actually have my first breathing space in about three or four months. Um, I was all kind of at the same time. I've, I've been doing... Um, cruise like music themed cruises for companies like Atlantis and Summit and Groove Cruise um, and sort of on and off of cruise ships around the world for well really for about 15 years (laughs) Um, and then um, last fall I sort of I threw my name in the ring for being the entertainment director for all of the properties um, in the Fire Island Pines, okay. which is a resort community um, south of Long Island. And at the same time, I, it's it's an island that I love that I go to every summer just to, you know, just to hang out. And I, I know a lot of people there. So at the same time, I also put in to be the producer of their um, sort of community fundraising party. Okay. Which doesn't sound like much, but it's actually an all-night dance party, a DJ dance party on the beach for 3,000 people, um, which goes from so 9 p.m. until alley. sunrise. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's actually a, it's a pretty big deal for, for the whole community. Um, and I figured one of those things would pan out, and they both did. So I've ended up living on Fire Island since April, since the beginning of April. And only leaving to do projects and then coming right back. That just sounds oh, like fun. You had no complaints there. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, none at all. And now um, I, d- I have a couple of months to stay on Fire Island and run the entertainment there and, and sort of finish doing all the upgrades to the nightclubs and the, and the uh, event spaces. And uh, then I go on the next cruise in October. Okay. You know, you, you you touched on a whole bunch of stuff that I wanted to you know I wanted to discuss, um, but you know, but since the first place you went was the cruise ships, um, you know, you've been doing you've been doing cruise ships for a long time. It's one of the things you do, and as from what I've seen is it's a couple different things. Like you you program uh, uh, shows that are like uh, that are that are uh, narrative uh, shows that, that that run in the in the in the showrooms. You 
program the dance events that happen. You, you design uh, some of the dance events. So, I mean, like, what are the things that you're doing on cruise ships, and what, how is that? It, really, the critical thing is how is that different than what we do here on land? Well, when I started out the cruise ships I was on had about 700 passengers. And basically I came on board with some suitcases and made, you know, a light and sound thing happen on deck. Um, and, yeah, I would, I would program special shows for um, the talent. And, and you know, that, that was very sort of plug and play. We would have uh, a lounge or a full-size theater with, you know, up to 90 or 100 moving lights in it. And we just go in there when they weren't having a show, usually overnight, and program to a track and hope that the lights hit the right place on the stage <laughs> when the show actually happened. Um, I so think every programmer is like completely blind, essentially. Yeah, I think every programmer has had that experience, though, where, where you really only have this tiny window of opportunity to make it happen, and then you sort of create a, a, a bump page of effects and sort of some underlying cues and then just adjust them on the fly if you see your talent in the dark. Um, but that has sort of fallen by the wayside as the cruise ships have gotten bigger and bigger. Now, most of the ships that I'm on have between 2,800 and 5,200 passengers. And the production has gotten massive. So um, I've become, I, I don't know, one of the world specialists in turning the top deck uh, the pool deck of a cruise ship into an open air dance club. Oh, okay. And that involves, you know, 120, 150 moving lights and lasers and special effects and a huge sound system. And I'm really not in charge of the lasers. That's, that's, there's somebody that I regularly work with named Kyle Garner who owns, uh, Laseronics and he and his partner, Poncho, run, you know, they, they take care of the lasers. They, they, they do everything with them. They operate them. They program them. They're fantastic to work with. Um, you know, I, I brought in a, a production manager about 10 years ago, John Finnan. He now handles all of the carnets and the logistics, and that's really complicated stuff. Um, and he also handles the sound sometimes. So really, I can just concentrate on, you know, lighting and haze and effects and things like that. Okay. Um, for these cruise ships. And then generally, whether the cruise, the, the cruise is four days long or 11 days long, there's pretty much a party on deck almost every night that we are not either leaving port or coming in to disembark. Um, so it's really, it's very different from being on land in several respects. First of all, you're in international waters and there's no power coming from anywhere except the engines. And engine power on a cruise ship can be any multitude of voltages, any multitude of formats. It can be star power, Y, delta. You know, it can have a ground or not. It can have a neutral or not. It can be, you know, a virtual neutral. There's, there's a lot of different um, configurations that, you know, I've sort of learned some, uh, you know, at least entry-level graduate electrical theory to try to figure <laughs> out. Because a lot of times also... Um, Unfortunately, the chief engineer of the ship doesn't necessarily understand what we're doing. Yeah, right. because they, they've right. spent all their time well, on I, all the things that go into cruise ships, and one of those things is not generally entertainment lighting. No, I mean, their job is to maintain the ship as it was built right. yeah. and to make sure that it keeps working, which is a big job. Their job is not to try to interface with a Verilite, which, you know, <laughs> they've never seen before. They don't even know which end of it the light comes out of. And so it's really more my job to know their ship. Mm -hmm. and to figure out how we can interface with them painlessly. Um, 
So that's a big piece of it is being a master electrician. A big piece of it is also being um, a crew chief, but of a specific kind, because I deal with a marine department, I deal with a hotel department, and I deal with people that have rules that they've been sort of adjusting and following for 400 years. Namely that the captain is in charge, there's no such thing as mutiny, you do exactly what you're told, and, you know, and there's a culture of that where um, you have to learn how to interface with these people that's very different than we might interface with the union crew or with, you know, the people that we work with on a regular basis. Um, they're very regimented. It's, yeah. it's much more military. So, and, and they're much more accountable um, for safety and for things like that. So... There's that aspect of it. And then there's the aspect of uh, I don't have a lot of crew. There's not a lot of cabins available to have crew. Right. Um, and I have a tremendous amount of gear. My, my partner, Robert, also comes in with a video wall uh, that has to be built onto a truss structure. So we have learned to be very creative about um, how to build and how to secure these things, how to make things go very fast, how to instruct crews that don't necessarily speak English because we're in other countries and are not in and um, and we have to learn about their power distribution about how their kinds of trust go together we don't have in the United States um, so there's just a lot it's it's like mm -hmm. it's a it's I've, I've gotten what feels to me like a graduate education yeah. <laughs> doing these cruise ships that's amazing <laughs> I mean that's 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 just, that's really really inter I mean and it, and it you make it sound both really really interesting and really really difficult to kind of do but it's really satisfying. It's very satisfying because you know the bell goes off at five when they start the boat drill the life the lifeboat drill for all the passengers. So at five o'clock, if you're not done, and if your crew isn't done to the point that's satisfactory, that just me and my small group of volunteers or friends or whoever I brought along to help me out with this thing. Um, if, if, it's not, if it's not done to that point, I honestly don't know what I would ever do. I've done 79 cruises and we've never gotten to that point and not been ready. But it involves, you know, if somebody, I remember there was a time I was working with a Verilite, you know, 200 series years ago. And Verilite Clearly. didn't actually send, <laughs> they didn't send a crew person with them. They just sort of anointed me a Verilite um, certified technician and right. gave me a work box. And um, I remember there was a time when everything came on board except for a couple of key cables. And there were those old mil-spec, nine-pin, mm -hmm. you know. The cheater cables. Right. So we had to make one. Uh, there was another time when uh, their power distribution box caught fire when it got turned on. Um, and we had to take it apart and rebuild it using whatever we had around. You know, we pulled a, cut up some feeder cables, um, rewired the interior. I've put out probably five or six of those at sea. Um, I'm guessing that uh, something catching on fire at sea is a different kind of situation than it is. It is. If the captain finds out about it, it is a major emergency. People are mustered. You know, all of the passengers are mustered to their lifeboat stations. There is a general alarm that rings. A fire team comes out and deals with it. It's, it's a big deal. Yeah. So the goal is for me to put it out before anybody catches it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because then the party can keep going. Yeah. Um, so I've put out uh, fires in garbage cans that were you know, caused by a cigarette. I've put out fires in uh, Sokopec's 
cables that got salt water in them. I put uh-huh. fires out in distro boxes uh, in the base of a Verilite, um, various places. So far, we've never been caught at it. <laughs> <laughs> So in these situations, like speci- so spe- specifically on the on the cruise ships, uh, in the beginning, who were you working for, and who do you work for now? I mean, I know so, that, I know that Guys with Productions ultimately is is doing these shows, right? No, um, Guys with Productions is essentially a vendor. The the producer of the shows on cruise ships is whoever is renting that ship okay. and providing all of the guests with that experience. Okay. So, um, and they're hiring, you know, this is mostly, my biggest client is Atlantis Events. They're a gay charter company. Um, and I've been working with them since 1999 when I was doing, um, I was doing a party on Fire Island for about a thousand people at a house. And the house was on a bay and we had built uh, a deck out over the bay and a big lighting structure on that deck and there was a dance party on the bay, and it was called Dancing on the Bay. Nice. Um, and it was a fundraiser uh, for, I think, Stonewall Community Foundation, one of the gay organizations in the city. And um, it went really, really well. And this guy comes up to me in the DJ booth, and he says, can you do this on a cruise ship? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> no I've clue. never been on anything bigger than a fishing boat, but I'll give it a try. So um, he sent me out. Let's see. He sent me out of Miami on a new boat at the time, which was the Norwegian uh, Star. And it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. It was, you know, it was a vehicle and it was a hotel and it looked like something. It was the size of the Empire State Building laying on its side. And it had all of these luxuries and these, you know, and restaurants and arcades and games and pool decks and, 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 just anything that you could ever possibly Shopping want. Malls there was and never, yeah. There was yeah. no reason to ever leave the ship, <laughs> right? You know, you could go to some little sandy beach somewhere, you know, a taxi right away, or you could just sit by the pool and have the exact same experience right. with someone bringing you cocktails. So um, I kind of instantly fell in love with that for obvious reasons. Okay, of course. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, and, and, and because that was the very first time, and that was with a Verilite 200 system, I just sort of, you know, I convinced them that I could do this on my own. <laughs> Did they provide the lighting and stuff for you, or was that something that you had to put together for them? I had to spec it all out. You spec it all out? Yeah, and, um, and the thing about that is that I'm on my own recognizance, because if I forget a clamp or I forget a you breakout. You get it. <laughs> just one breakout. Yeah. There is like an entire section of my light show that won't happen. Right. And I, I did that once, um, or it was left off of the pack or something, and we actually had to send one of our DJs to L.A. to get it and fly him to Mexico to, <laughs> to put it on the, the ship in time for me to add it to the light show. And like the first party we had, like a third of the lights were just not on. So it was kind of nice. So, like, the next night it felt like, ooh, ooh he added these party. extra effects. Yeah. Look at that. This is getting better. You know, so it all worked out in the end. But um, it's, uh, like, you know, you're on your own out there. Yeah. Well, uh, that's actually – it leads into another question I actually had. When you were doing, like, seven shows in a row, like, every night you said it was a party yeah. sort of thing, do you change it up every time? Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
because the the music. But I guess changes. you can with the moving lights and that sort of thing. Like you can right. always kind of give it. Like the, the first time, I might only you know do a few different kind of patterns of motion and stick to a couple of colors and maybe not make it too dynamic. Yeah. Um, and then by the last night, it's wild. I'm pounding on the console the entire <laughs> night long, like everything's full manual, and you yeah. know all kinds of just crazy things well, are that's happening. That's cool yeah. though, because at least a lot took the creativity of you being able to just kind of do whatever you do with the feel of the music and kind of move along with it. Right? Yeah. Cool. And, like things will occur to me as I go, or you know, I'll look at a video that somebody took with their camera phone somewhere else in the in the area, and I'm like, oh do that or that look kind of cool on this last cruise i found a broken three-foot disco ball that was broken in half it had fallen and it was in a box yeah um so i found these two guys really big burly guys and um i had them go out into the middle of the dance floor with it over their heads just the half of it yeah over their heads and then i i shot all the lights like you know pin beam on this disco ball and had them like rotate slowly <laughs> with it. That's awesome. That's <laughs> Just awesome. as like a special effect in the middle of the night. It was hysterical. That's cool. So, you know, uh, on the designs, so obviously you design all the rigs on the cruise ships mm-hmm. and you also design things uh, on land as well. Mm-hmm. Um, forgetting the programming of the rigs for a second, just what are your philosophies behind design for events like this and how you get from the initial meeting with a client to a plot? Um, well, first, uh, the Pines Party that I produced last month, um, they actually they made me the producer of the whole event. So in charge of marketing and promotions and, and the theme and, and almost, you know, every aspect of it. Um, and what they did was they kind of sat down with me and they and, and we started having these sort of brainstorming meetings. Um, there were, you know, a group of eight of them. We met in an apartment. They said, you know, we'd really like to do a James Bond 007 theme. I'm thinking, on the beach? In, like, tuxedos? I'm like, okay, well, um, I can certainly consider that. Um, I was thinking more of something like South Pacific. <laughs> They're like, oh, okay, South hmm. uh, How do you envision that? So, you know, I said, well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to build a set kind of like, you know, for the Oscars, you know, right. Hammerstein, Rogers and Hammerstein show. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll research some old antique military trucks and bring them out. We can make them into a stage or a VIP yeah. deck. Um, we'll build scaffolding. And, you know, half of the set is there. We already have the sand and the ocean. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. We – I. I, I know that there's some discarded bamboo around that we can use to build more set pieces. Um, you know, and I think if we go with that, you know, it's not going to be as expensive to try to make a, as it would be a slick 007 sort of you casino royale stuff, yeah. look. You know, we already got the look. So they liked the idea of the budget being lower, <laughs> and it was considerably. Um, they liked the idea of reusing materials that were discarded out there already. So um, they kind of went with it. And, you know, I, I have two ways of dealing with, with, with clients in terms of budget. I'll either say, you know, how spectacular do you want this thing? And I'll tell you how much it, it's going to cost you. Right. Or I'll say, you know, what is your budget? And I will tell you how far I can pave the road with it. Um, 
and it's really kind of I, I think the latter is the more common response. Okay. You know, people have a number in mind, and they they might not think that they have a number in mind, but if they actually do think about it, if you present them with a number, then they'll come up with that number that they had in mind. Right. Um, but it's a touchy thing because no one wants to feel like they're cheap right? and they're, like, shortchanging. Do you find that they don't share it as much? Because like, I've found in, in, in our world, too, I'm like, we find that people don't like to share that number. They don't. Okay. They're like, why don't you tell me what it's going to cost first? I'm like, <laughs> right. okay, well, it's going to cost 138. So you find that They're like, frequently. it's going to cost $138,000. They're like, oh, well, we were thinking 13. And then you're like, okay, great. Okay, Here's what well, I can do. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks for that number. So it's all scalable. Yeah, totally. Um, also, um, I do something that's a little bit unusual, and I can get away with it on cruise ships, and I can get away with it on nonprofit events, which the Pines Party was. Um, I rely very, very heavily on volunteers mm. that I have used over and over again and that I have trained as stagehands. They, they can run DMX data. They can put together a, a distro system with some direction. They can build trust. Um, and, you know, it's probably a terrible thing to say in public, but uh, it really makes a nonprofit event so much more spectacular and so much more affordable than having to bring in a crew. Absolutely. You know, I do have crew that I bring in, you know, from from the vendor that sort of know where things are packed in boxes and know how things go together if necessary. Right. Like three or four guys. And then the other eight or 12 or in the case of the Pines Party, um, I had 55 volunteers to I think a crew of 12. Um, That's pretty great. Yeah, with different skill levels, and some of them did carpentry, and some of them did painting. Some of them, you know, put together decor made out of bamboo, whatever. Um, And other ones were, like, really instrumental in setting up lighting, things like sound and stuff like that. It's going to be tough to manage a career of 55 when they're not professional stagehands. Well, um, there was a learning curve to that, too. (laughs) I actually have, I mean, Robert, my partner, and I have both gotten really great at that and i think a lot of our volunteers also know what to expect from us okay you know we work them very you work hard. with a lot of the same ones a lot of the same volunteers yeah they were so i mean, I mean there, them, there are people that you've that you've actually some of them have been working times. with me for many years many years yeah. gotcha um and well, they helps. all become friends and they train each other and they really enjoy being part of the team yeah. we have a great time working together um and, but, I mean, it's really, you know, and there are also, there are people who have other jobs that are, in many cases, of great responsibility. They're TV producers right. and, um, you know, and psychologists and, you know, CEOs of, you know, consultants, things like that. Um, so they're very competent. Right. And then they find themselves, like, really enjoying this moment of manual labor and the feeling of accomplishment of being able to put something together and then to go to the party and enjoy it and say, look, I made this. This is my handiwork, and they're like really proud of that. Um, so it's it's like it's very rewarding Absolutely. all the way around. And and these are people who, you know, the kind of money that I would pay them as a stagehand is sort of like, you know, I'd spend that for thanks, dinner. Thanks for mm-hmm. my beer. Yeah. <laughs> who cares? Yeah. You know, it reminds me. You know, in, in another life, I did a lot of uh, emergency uh, services, like you know, volunteer. Uh, you know, up at college and down here, down here right. in the city. Um, I remember one of my, uh, my, my my basic firefighting instructor had said that 
you know, he was working in Scarsdale and that the, the, the people that were volunteers there were these people that made four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars a year, but they were thrilled to be pulling hose lines on a fire scene because they could they could point to it and say, I you know, I you know, I, I, I cut that car open to get that person out. I put that house fire out. You know, I'm proud of my community and I'm helping to support it and to keep it safe. So right. it's sort of awesome that you managed to tap into that exact same kind of concept. You know, I think uh, maybe it's because um, the gay community is a little bit tighter that way. They're a little closer. So. Um, so they are more egalitarian and they're, they're – they're, I don't know if it's easier to do it in that world. I've never had any success doing it on um, non-gay events. It's 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 much that. more complicated. Or when I have, yeah. it's been an all gay crew, which has been kind of hysterical. <laughs> right. um, so you're like they're doing this like kind of douchey EDM <laughs> thing with like you know all these like 20 year olds and you know, out there and like you know the girls in the little tiny bikinis and then like inside of this cordoned area around the lighting booth is an all gay party <laughs> just happening on its own. <laughs> you know? No uh, fireworks shooting, bottles oh, no, of champagne. No, over not the- in there. <laughs> no, but lots of sparkly costumes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and actually, it, it, they're not all CEOs or, or whatever or consultants. They're also you know waiters right. and massage therapists. I mean, like like from every possible walk of life. But they've all become friends and they all support each other in, in creating this thing. That's so cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Actually, I really love that. Yeah, it's fun. So now yeah, you've got the design completed. You're you're in the room, and it's you know, and it's time to do time to program the, the show. What what's your philosophy? I know you know, like you really like to work live. Yeah. How do, how does that work for you? How do you set up your show? How do you set up your console to make that work for you? Oh, you know, it's it's sad. I'm I'm not a fantastic programmer. I've I've met some that are really good. I really pretty much set my console up the way. The first whole hog was set up when I first used it at, I think, Bash or Production Arts in 1996. Like, I had a whole hog, too. I set it up the way it, it suggested to do in the little – in the manual with, like, <laughs> you know, my beams and my grooves. I, I pretty much set it, it up the same. It was position, beam, color. Gobo. And, yeah, I don't remember what the, the I think it was Gobo. pop-up was. So, like, with that, I set it up like that. Um, when I do a Grand MA, I do a variation of that just with more windows because you have to. Because you can. Um, and um, I try to just get everything, all of my, my motion, all of my positions, all of my things on one page where I don't have to be scrolling through anything. Makes and sense. so that I can just grab the, my favorite things and bang on them. You know, and then I'll have another page with, like, some other effects and things that – that I might want to use um, under other circumstances. But mostly I want to be able to punt it so that if I get a surprise, I can like, you know, whack the blind button or the highlight button or like something and make something happen and then go mm-hmm. back to what we were doing before. Um, for me, it's sort of like I do very broad strokes. I do a lot of dynamics. I'm, I'm, I used to be a psychologist, so I'm, I'm very aware of how color and brightness and, and mo- motion and energy – affects people's psyche and how it affects people's interpretation of the music and of the environment and and their experience of each other. So what I'm really conscious of is what people are experiencing down on the dance floor even more than what it is that they're looking at or, or, you know, visually paying attention to around the room. 
Because typically they're probably not even paying attention to that. Hardly they're just no. feeling I mean, they know that they're it. made they, – they, I, I would say the vast majority of them know that they felt a certain way. Right. It's and they'll an come back to me and they'll say, you know, when the DJ played that Pet Shop Boys song and everything got like orange and yellow and like I'll never forget that moment. Right. It was five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's like I feel like in my experience, I've been doing this for 25 years and people notice the broad strokes. Right. They don't notice like the intimate little details of did that gobo get right into focus or were all those lights pointing exactly the same place? Though I do that for my own entertainment, I recognize that that's my own edification, not for the crowd, really. Yeah. I remember you once telling me that, you know, you, that your philosophy on, 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 show, on running the show is that the DJ is telling a story, which I'd never right. heard before. But I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about that and how you hook into that. All right. Well, remember when we did the boom party? Yeah. The um, Luciano, um, he's a DJ that comes from sort of a European background. He's an he's a he's a seasoned DJ, um, and I feel like you know DJs when they come into a room that's empty, you know he starts very sort of ambient housey, very kind of like um, very soft and very tamped down and very you know he's creating kind of a a cocktail party Mm -hmm. so for that you know i'll start out by just setting up a mood people walk into a room and i'm a you know a walk-in look like for a corporate event you're aware that they walk they open the doors and they they look and they and they get set up for an experience so you Mm -hmm. want to create a sense of anticipation Mm -hmm. but still something that's very static and then, and it's something that has a, a very limited color range, but but a color range that's trying to give the place a feel, like maybe like moonlight filtering through trees, or you know something like a, like the moon on an ocean, or something you know usually night themed, whatever. Um, and then uh, you know as he starts to pick up the pace and and create more dynamics, and the room starts to fill up with energy, then. You know, there's a little bit more motion. It's like the, the it's like you know the ocean's getting a little rockier. Okay. Like there's a storm coming or whatever. But yeah, I mean, it's it's very abstract. I don't think that you know the story that that a DJ is telling is something that you know. It's not like Hans Christian Andersen. It's more like a series of feelings that kind of are going up and down um, in an effort to give everybody on the dance floor from all of their different backgrounds. A feeling of similarity, a feeling of oneness, a feeling of like we're all experiencing something together. That catharsis is why people go out, I think. Okay. That catharsis is why people go to forget their daily lives and their problems with their girlfriend or their fight with their boss or whatever. They go there to, you know, feel like a 10-year-old again or and, and to feel like they're all the same people and they're all having this experience of joy. Yeah. So we're building to that. That's the peak. And, and it, you know, it takes some work to get everybody on the same page. Now. So you can't just start with all the lights going, you know, in all different colors and just swinging randomly around the room. It has to build. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, the psychology part of this because, you know, I, I, I've come to believe that there is no – like one typical way people people get into the business of lighting, but even having said that, your route is a little bit more circuitous than some. Uh, <laughs> how did you end up studying psychology at Brandeis, and then how did that become? How did that turn into 
what you are now. Well, you know, I, I started at Vanderbilt. Oh. In psychology. Um, and at Vanderbilt, I really discovered theater tech. I, they had um, a Surratt, uh, or they had a, a, a student theater company that was really fantastic. Um, and I started out doing sound and taking theater classes there. Um, and then, you know, being a Southerner and being in a fraternity, it, like, I just really kind of put myself through it in the whole coming out process and uh, ended up at Brandeis as a gay activist and taking all sorts of queer theory classes, being very gung-ho and organizing rallies, and I became head of the organization there um, and a number of other things. And uh, when I was 20, I was working for the Department of Health. Uh, and a substance abuse task force. <laughs> okay. And um, it, I was really work-studying, and I needed a night job. And, you know, right before I turned 21, a friend of mine took me out and snuck me into this club. It was called City uh, in Boston. And it had an enormous moving light system and a moving truss system that operated over people's heads in this disco. And that held like 2,700 people. And I just remember walking into the door and looking up and being knocked over, just completely blown away, and deciding in that moment that I was going to learn how all that worked, and one day I was going to run it. And which was very funny because it was not my trajectory of my career at all, but when I was nine years old, I saw this movie Xanadu. Oh my god, I love you, that you movie. Do? It's oh, a I terrible have, movie. Are you kidding? I have the I, I have the actual record. So do I. Soundtrack. It's fantastic. I list I wore that oh. record out. Oh, I didn't yet. I wore that record out and I didn't <laughs> I didn't even know that anybody else listened to it because no, I was growing up in Tennessee like a little whatever I was and pretty much in isolation. And um, I was a tinkerer, and I, I saw the, you know, I took things apart and eventually started putting them back together. But around that time, I saw this movie. I was nine, and I'm like, I'm going to build Xanadu one day. I'm going to build my <laughs> own. I love it. I'm going to be that guy. I really like it. Gene Kelly, I, Gene Kelly <laughs> resonated for me. Oh, yeah. I started collecting 78 RPM big band records. From that day forward. Wow. Like 25 cent records from this little record shop in Ellison Place. And um, and that was just my like secret thing. And then like I'm 20 years old now. I'm on my track to have a PhD in psychology. I walk through the doors of this club and I'm like, wait, put the brakes. No, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So the next morning I went in. Um, at 10 o'clock in the morning and I just buzzed on the doorbell until people finally showed up. <laughs> And that uh, three, <laughs> yeah. it, I, it was a long time. I remember a food truck coming, <laughs> breakfast. You know. um, and uh, I went in and I said, "Is the manager here?" And, you know, so I go, I say, "I, I, I want a job here. Um, I want to work on lighting." And they said, "Are you a lighting guy?" I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> I said, like lights. <laughs> They said, good, we start renovations this week. You should get to work. Go find – his name was Paul Meany. He was the guy that was in charge. Go find him and tell him that you work for him. I was like, okay. So, yeah, $6 an hour and um, off to the races. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
And um, so I kept on kind of doing a dual track. And I got my degree and I became actually a family therapist working with children and adolescents in, um, out of Lynn, Massachusetts during the day. And then at night I was doing, you know, working lighting at this little nightclub, this great little dance club called Quest in Boston. And by then City had been renovated and turned into the first Avalon, mm-hmm. which is now like a legendary nightclub. It's group. gone, I think, now, right? In Boston, yeah. it's gone. Um, it's still in L.A. and a couple of other locations. There was one here in New York. Um, but uh, at, at one point, I was at a crossroads, and I was really having a tough time juggling the nightlife and then waking up at 6 in the morning and driving to Lynn and, like, seeing clients and having staff meetings. And uh, I finally walked into my boss's office at the, at the family therapy group, and I said, we probably should talk and he was like you know it's funny i was gonna call you into my office today i was like okay so should i quit or do you want to fire me he's like i'd much rather you quit i'm like okay great so we just very amicably shook hands um and it was around the same time that um MTV was going to shoot in my club. Oh, it, then I was also working at Venus Smile. And they were going to shoot this new band that no one had ever heard of called Radiohead. <laughs> and, um, and they had asked me to come in and do the lighting for it. And the club at the same time had asked me to go full-time as, a, as the LD. And it all just sort of fit together. And I quit my job and I just started that. And I haven't done anything since except for that. Okay. What were those, uh, those first couple of years like what were the th- what were the things you had to learn most quickly and what were the things that you learned then that are still serving you now um never take anything personally <laughs> um what have i learned uh first of all I've, I've learned that you can fix almost anything with something with every with the stuff that you have around you uh which you kind of have to do sometimes mm-hmm. um whether it's, you know, cannibalizing. I, I, I really, really got good at MacGyvering stuff. You know, they, they had a joke. At, uh, you know, the people that put on Cosmic Opera um, were like, you know, uh, were mostly, you know, Axwell and his management team and some other group. And they had this sort of running joke because the first time I worked with Axwell, he was on stage in Philadelphia and his cryo system didn't work. And his cryo system was this very complicated like ETC lighting console with a dimmer pack attached to these these relays and thing and, and, and it shot off these, you know, four or six cryo things in the front. And um, the dimmer packs kept on blowing the fuses and it was sitting there. And I, I, they, they brought me on stage and I'm like, hey, how's everything going? It's great to meet you. He's like, yeah, everything's fine, but we can't really show you our full show because cryo's not working. I was like, oh, can I have a look at it? And so I go in there and, and I see this whole setup and I'm like, okay, yeah, can you get me just an extension cord and a power strip with a switch on it? And they're like, why? I'm like, I, I'm going to fix this for you. Just get me a power strip and an extension cord. So they run around. You know, eventually we find a power strip that was plugged into something, but nothing was plugged into it. And and you know, five minutes later, I'm like, "Here's the power strip. Just when you want cryo, click the red switch." And he was like, "Oh my god! How did you do that?" Um, so they had this running thing. Every time they sent me an email, they're like, "Oh, and Guy Smith needs." Three, three strawberries, a stick of gum, a toothpick, and some hope. 
<laughs> Anytime there was a problem, they would come up with um, a jar of peanut butter, some tooth, some a bathing suit, and some floss. Like it was always three things that totally didn't go together. But whatever it was, it would fix the problem somehow. You um, make it happen. So yeah, so that became my rep with those guys. Um, I also learned, you know, when you talk to management, twenty-five words or less. No one who is not a techie has the patience for your technical discussion. If you want to buy a new set of IntelliBeams at the time or whatever it was, you don't say, you know, we're having this problem where I feel like the broom is out of balance and like I'm trying to think. Is there? You just say, hey, I need 10 IntelliBeams. Can I have them? And then if they ask why, which they almost never do, you justify it. Otherwise, they'll just show up on a pallet. Okay. Um, that's all I can think of right now. Okay. Well, that's. I mean, that's 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 good stuff. I, you know, I. So since then, obviously things have grown substantially, uh, and you've worked all over the world. Uh, is that is that is that true? Would you say that's true? Yeah. Well, what, almost all over. Um, what what are the like? <laughs> Where haven't you been? There's some there's some patches on the other side of the planet that I'm looking to fill this season. <laughs> what are the what are the things that, like those of us that primarily work in New York City, need to know about working in, say, Moscow? About working in, oh my like, God, Moscow! You know, like, <clears throat> what what are the things that we need to know if you know if we're going to go to these other places? Well, Moscow, become friends with the mafia. You will have a much much better time. Um, in most of the places in the world, there are no such thing as fire laws or rigging laws or certifications or standards. So you really kind of have to be responsible for that stuff yourself. Um, because if you – like when you ask people to hang a light in a place like China or Egypt, they will hang lights. But they'll tie them up with a piece of rope and not use the clamp that's in the box. And the light will probably come without a plug so they will – Take bare wire and wire the wire it to the bare wire coming out of the light, and they'll just twist the wires together, and then move on to the next light. So you actually have to go around and instruct the crew how you like having things done, and you have to kind of inspire them that that's a really cool way to do it, because otherwise they'll be like, "No, no, no, we got this, we got this, we yeah. just wire this, we we know how to wire it." I'm like. No, I'd really like you to put the plugs on it, on it. <laughs> if that's okay. And it's just going to take a, a little bit more time, but it's it's going to be worth it. Watch. Um, so there's a little bit of that. Um, I made big mistakes in Japan in terms of not learning enough about these local social customs and, you know, the respectfulness of bowing and, like, how to really be a team player. Being in Japan is all about being a team player. Yeah. Um, there are other cultures that are, you know, they just have different values about those things. It's really worth going to the United Nations and taking some classes, <laughs> you know, before you go and spend any length of time in, say, China or Japan or the Middle East or whatever. Um these places are like they're 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 different planets. They know they know about us from television, but by and large, the, the people that you'll be working with are not really there to understand you, the ugly American coming in with your guns blazing and telling them how to do stuff. It's just not not an effective track. Okay. Other than that, it's not that different. Um, 
I had some crazy adventures in Moscow. But, like, again, in Moscow, we did an event for two or three hundred people inside the sixth floor of an 1840s warehouse that was all made out of wood and covered in antique carpets and covered and, and only had one entrance and it was a sort of broken marble staircase. And their decor guy decided to drape everything with fabric, cover the floor with votive candles and light a fire in the fireplace because it was midwinter. It was like 27 degrees really cold. below zero outside. But – and everybody smoked. So like no need this for a hazer. could not happen in America. <laughs> no. No. There are fire laws. Yeah. But this was a conglomeration of three gangs essentially coming together to make nice with each other and start a nightclub conglomerate. And um, it was a private event. And it was, you know, we all were sitting there literally fearing for our lives. I had a fire extinguisher that I brought with me that, I, that sat next to me by the console. I was ready to leap up and put it out and save myself any way I possibly could. Oh I'm not sure. I actually had a plan to use the fire extinguisher more as a weapon. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just it's a different world. and You just can't expect it to be like it is here. All right. I mean, and, and then just like time-wise uh, – how have you seen the business change since you, since you first started? Oh wow! You know, and, and was it and was it good that when you started the the the, the, you know, the technology was what it was then, and it sort of it, sort it of was great along with you. I mean, when I started, the technology was very electromechanical, and it was very like zero to ten volt control. It was really easy to understand. So it was almost like learning the technology there was a primer for what came afterwards. Um, and it was great being one of the like five or six. Hog programmers in New York in 1996. I mean, I think they teach it now in school. Like, I think you can go to college and learn how to program. I, a I hog. believe so. Yeah. Um, but back then, it you, was you like certainly go to you know you know high end. You could do a class, a class, but, class about how to. Right. But I think a lot of the schools now are actually they're. I think like NYU probably. I think I, they I'm do. Sure, they have one. Yeah. On their so programs. back then, it was like being a Freemason. Yeah. Like you had to be inducted into it. You had to know these other consoles that were unrelated before they would let you learn. You know, it was like yeah. – it kind of felt like this really private club. And, you know, if you didn't quite measure up, they would never let you do it again. You know, it was like – it was really pretty cool. My first gig um, – my first gig with a whole hog was the Sony Consumer Electronics Show. Was that a whole hog or a whole hog 2? Whole hog 2. But it was two of them with two wings ganged together running four theaters with 250 moving lights. My first gig. I had the manual in my hand. And I was programming with the manual by the side of the console, which, of course, does not make the producer or the lighting designer feel at all confident. No. Um, eight hours before the show, I had finished programming the show, basically. And they had brought in another programmer from... Vegas mm -hmm. to basically say, we have no confidence left in you. You have to go. I'm like, but it's it's done. I did it. <laughs> I did it. Just press play and it's all simply coded. They're like, yeah, you still have to go. Um, but uh, now being a programmer is, is I mean, so, people like pretty much know how to program, uh, especially 
people in their 20s are coming out of college knowing how to program. So now if you're going to be a programmer that people want, you have to have more skills than just being able to program. You have to be able to production manage. You have to be able to field repair things. You have to be able to run a crew or know how the crew is run. Um, And you have to be able to save a show when things go wrong. Otherwise, you're pretty much just like anybody else. All right. Makes I mean, sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Totally. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of because you know I didn't start programming until the uh, like mid two thousands. So I don't know if it was true then, but I, I've, I've definitely noticed that there's been an increasing lean on programmers to provide element to provide design elements. You know, regardless of who the oh, designer yeah. is, there's more and more. You know, as 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 all the systems grow more complex. Well, yes and no. I mean, like some designers don't want to hear your ideas as a programmer. That's true, but that's that's that, that that tends to be theatrical. But even but in rock and roll, when I was working with C Factor back in the early two thousands, most of the designers I worked with there said, "Okay, design the show, and I'll come back in an hour." Just give me give me a whole bunch of looks. Mm-hmm. They basically gave you the units, and they said, "Go with us." Right, Have and they'd fun. come back after a few drinks with their girlfriend. Sure. And they'd be like, "What do you got? That looks good. That looks good. Make that one pink." That. Uh, I don't like that focus. That looks good. All right, run that baby. And that was it. Okay. Give me more warm I think it looks. depends on the genre sort of thing. Like, yeah. It depends on what you're, what you're working with. But I think, all, I think they always expected – I mean depending on the designer because designers sort of – they're artists and they create their own way of working. Some of them really, really micromanage and want the programmer just to execute exactly what they ask. Mm-hmm. And that is more theatrical designers. And then some designers are just like – they just want to sort of give it, a, give it a spin, give it a feel, put their name on it, and that's that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's changed or if that's always been that way. I got – you know, I hear you have more experience than I, so it sounds like it's what – it, what it's always – it sounds like what it is now is what it's always been. There's yeah. Some, there's some who want complete control and there's some who it's more uh, working together and there's some where it's sort of – I've run into I've run into designers, production designers and lighting designers, both, who actually have had not no say in the plot, no say in the programming, didn't even like participate in a conference call, or or if they were there, I didn't hear them, um, and whose name was on the top of the credits when the show was over. I've seen that. It's very interesting, isn't it? It is. I'm like, how do you get that gig? <laughs> That's what I want. How did you make the big bucks and you actually sat in the trailer for the entire show? Well, you know, I'll say I don't think I've ever worked with a designer like that. Um, you know, as a programmer, anyway. Although mm-hmm. it's it's got to be a little bit nerve wracking to. I mean, even when it comes down to just wanting some feedback, like is as a is programmer, this what you want like is is what I'm doing the right thing? Do you hate yourself? Are you on drugs? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> That's actually where my mind went. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you need to talk about something? Yeah. Are you upset? <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, I imagine that, like, th- th- these days you probably have sort of less and less um, situations like that where, you know, as you become more and more and more the guy. I mean, you know, even now right. that now that you're a pro- you're a producer, you know, you're not – even not even just designing things of anymore. I'm as surprised you're, as you are, frankly. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not surprised. It's just you know. It, it seems to be that it's sort of a natural progression for for some people that have a certain mindset. And right. I mean, like when when did that happen? 
Like, when did, like, how did that start? When did that happen? I just, you know, as I went along, I had more and more ideas about how I thought things should look or how things should progress or, or how, you know, like a corporate event, how the story should kind of be told. And honestly, I feel a little bit like a vulture, but every now and then, like, somebody that's above me as a producer or as a lighting designer or whatever will screw the pooch and get fired. And, you know, the producer will come to me and say, hey, do you want to f- step in? Um, that's happened a lot. Other times, like with the Pines Party, I just sort of threw my hat in the ring um, several times and did, got ignored the first time, got ignored the second time, and finally said, look, guys, I actually really know what I'm doing. You're going to have to trust me on this. <laughs> and they're like, all right. Well, fine. You know, let's see what you can do with it. Um, but I've always just like, you know, I've 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 been lucky living in New York for 17 years. I have gotten to work with amazing, amazing lighting designers and fantastic programmers, and um, and really really great producers who are collaborative and theatrical and, and creative and visionary. Um, and I've sort of just learned their tricks and I've learned the, the mindset of sort of getting the bigger and bigger picture. And I just felt like as my consciousness of, of the event expanded, I just wanted to have more of a role and see what would happen. Um, making the jump to producer is big. I don't recommend it for everybody. <laughs> it was really stressful. It was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Bar none. Um... And I am described as a workaholic, but taking over aspects that I really didn't even know that I didn't know about, you know, promotion and marketing Mm -hmm. is something that I am really not, I was not familiar with, Um, you know, uh, you know, and a lot of the sort of decor aspects of it and dealing with the logistics and and the liquor deliveries and you know all these things um and luckily i had a co-producer that was seasoned in that who sort of who who shared a lot of those responsibilities and and who guided me in it um but it's it's a it's a big jump there's there's a lot more to production i think (laughs) than i really even realized when i took that on and it's great to have a mentor and and you know what going back to what you said before what have i learned don't believe the hype about you, good or bad. And for God's sake, if someone tells you your ego is out of control, it is. <laughs> and take a break. Because, because the one thing that will destroy any producer or designer or programmer's career more than anything and faster than anything else is having an ego about what they're doing. Okay. As this progressed, like what were the, what were the things that you found were the hardest – that we, you know, the, these the all, all of these new things you had to be doing. What, what were the hardest things to adapt to, and did you have to let get like you know, I'm assuming that you had complete control over lighting when you were the designer, but I, I imagine you had to let some of that go as as you transitioned into the sitting in the producer's chair. Crazily, no. Oh, I ran the entire party from the con- from the lighting console. Ah, okay. Um, what I did do is I deputized more people and gave them more producer responsibility over things that I didn't necessarily want to be in charge of in the moment. I still love running lighting. I just love it. It's like my favorite place to be. So if I'm supposed to be running the door and there's 
issues with the door, then I will send somebody to go and deal with the door. If there's issues with liquor, I'll send somebody to go and deal with deliveries. If there's, you know, whatever, I want to be in the lighting seat. I don't want to be a DJ. I don't want to be anything else. I just, I love running lighting. So, yeah, I didn't really give that up. I, I ask because, I mean, you know, as transitioning into management myself, it was really tough to realize that I, that I wasn't going to be able to run as many shows as I wanted to. I wasn't going to be able to design as many shows as I wanted to because I was always working in the future and always thinking about stuff that was coming up three yeah. months out and six months out. Well, I came to that crossroads, you know, as my company has been sort of growing and developing, um, I found myself being drawn into being more of an administrator and dealing with, um, you know, payroll issues and, and that kind of stuff. And what I realized is that, I, you know, I don't want to expand to the point where that's where where I am all the time because that's just not fun. I'm not in this for the money. I'm not in this to buy a boat or, you know, an apartment on Park Avenue. I'm in this because I really love doing the work in the moment. That's That's my vacation. So... You know, having all that, all the money and all the other trappings that go with having a larger and larger company and owning a warehouse full of gear and having a staff of 50 people that work under me is not rewarding for me. Okay. I, I just, I like doing the job and being in there, like in the trenches. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you actually about your company, about the, the structure of the company and how you assembled it. You know, I, I you know I know that uh, I know that your husband is one of the partners. My but, husband. <laughs> but uh, what about the rest of it? And, and what 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 you know? What are the roles and how are they defined? Um, I have some really trusted deputies, and so does Robert. That we sort of we farm some work out to, um, but it really never gets so big that. Um, I mean, there are a few jobs a year that is basically just all of my employees, and it's mostly just sort of regular freelancers. Um, but by and large, the jobs that I, I want to be on the jobs that I that I do, and if I'm if I don't want to be there, then I want to just give the job to another company because it's just not it's obviously not a client that I want to keep for whatever reason. Um, so it's really like so far we've kept it as a boutique operation. Okay. And, you know, Robert and I are both on board with that. There are ways that we'd like to expand. Um, I I am launching a new company as we expand um, this coming year. Oh, okay. Because I've never liked the idea of having my name on the letterhead. Guysmith Productions means that it really can get no larger than Guy Smith, And it means that if you're another person who's creative, you're going to feel stifled because there's this big Guy Smith on top of you. And I don't want to be that person. I never did. But because I was known individually by my own reputation, that worked well for the company. It was the brand that sort of came about sort of almost on its, you know, just as it happened. Right. So now there's a new company that we're forming called the Free Radical Design Group. Oh, okay. I like it. And that's going to be a much more collaborative um, – cooperative organization of artists. It's not a corporate structure. It's kind of more of a kibbutz <laughs> structure, okay. if you will. It's, it's um, a little bit more, more liberally attached. Okay. So, I mean, uh, when, do we th- when do you think that that's going to become? Um... That's this fall. Okay. Yeah. So if people want to know more about you, want to know, want to know more about your company, or want to know more about this new company, where should they go? Um, well, it's Guy, Guy Smith Productions is still currently the website. 
Um, but um, freeradicaldesigngroup.com is going to be our new website. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we as we wind things down, uh, you know, do you have any thoughts? You know, for people that are entering college, people that are leaving college, people that are young career professionals who are trying to figure out, trying to find their way, whether it's towards um, ultimately ending as a producer, ultimately ending as a lighting center, ultimately just you know working in this business uh, at, at whatever level they want to work in this business. What what, what thoughts do you have? Well, if, first I mean, of all, for someone doing that now, since you know, since we have seen that the, the business change and become more professionalized over the course of the last sure. twenty five years, um, the only reason I do this job is because it lights you up, and because it makes you feel like really excited and really fulfilled and really nurtured to do it under any circumstances. And it honestly makes no difference what you studied in college. I know that a college education is expensive and it feels like you invested so much in it. You should probably do what you learned in college. But nobody really knows when they go into college at the age of 18 what they're going to do with their lives. You can change your mind. It will make all the difference in the world. Um, the only way that I've ever gotten to do the things that I've wanted to do is to sort of throw my hat over the fence and then chase it. In other words, just to say – you know, I'm going to quit everything that I'm doing that doesn't fulfill me right now. I'm going to stop talking to anybody that makes me feel like I'm not 100% who I want to be in the world or that I'm not going in the right, you know, that I'm not ever going to amount to anything. Anybody that does not, anybody or any place or any producer or any job that does not make me feel nurtured and fulfilled and like I'm moving forward in the right direction, I will stop doing that and I will go and do something else. As there's absolutely nothing wrong with going and following the thing that turns you on in the moment. Thank you. And before we go, I have to ask about the Roseland coat check ticket. Oh, on around your neck. It's the last one, twenty seven hundred. Oh wow. The uh, management gave that to me after we did the last black party, which was a month before. Or it was a week before they closed. Um, I think I drove by that night. Yeah, probably would have seen you outside. And the management <laughs> were really sad that, that Roseland was closing. We sort of had a talk about it, and I said, you know, I think I know where there's some of these things, and I brought them to them. And they were like, why don't you take a couple? That's awesome. Right. Yeah. And I, it, Roseland is really the reason I came to New York to work oh, really? on the show for the first time, and I was just captivated by the place. And, and I'll miss it. I think that is going to be a big hole in New York not to have Roseland. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's been that sort of thing. You know, we lost uh, the tunnel. We lost mm-hmm. limelight. You know, we one Palladium, my event God. Space, one yeah. got turned into a mall. Palladium got turned into a dorm. And Sound Factory Sad. became, I don't know, I think they got knocked down. I think it's just it's probably, yeah, it's probably think... luxury apartments, Oh, no. Right? <laughs> Sound Factory, I think, became Sleep No More. Oh, oh I okay. I think you're right. Yeah. But, Yeah. All those places are gone, those places where people come together. New York has become more fragmented as a result. So go on a cruise. So go on a cruise! (laughs) (laughs) All right, thank you so much, Guy. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Thank you to Guy Smith. Remember to check out GuySmithProductions.com and FreeRadicalDesignGroup.com. Thank you to my co-host, Teresa Unfried, from Taj Event Productions at TajEventProductions.com. Don't forget to visit us at CastingLightPodcast.com, on Twitter at PodcastingLight, and on Facebook. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for joining us, and have a good show.